Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. I'm talking today with Jake Wood, who has been playing percussion and electronics in the touring production of Hamilton. Jake is based in San Francisco, but spends months at a time away from home with the show, doing multi-week runs in major cities. In addition to Hamilton, Jake has toured with San Francisco-based bands Diego's Umbrella and March 4th, and runs his own private teaching studio. Please visit us at WorkingDrummer.net, where you can check out our entire archive of nearly 200 past episodes and learn more about who we are and what we're about. If you want to support what we do here, along the right side of the homepage, you'll see buttons for PayPal and Patreon, and every donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. You can follow us on social media, and if you want to be featured on Instagram, post pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer. We love seeing what everyone is up to out there. Finally, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, and your ratings and reviews on those platforms are very helpful. Some of you may remember my co-host Matt Krause recently interviewed the Reverend Horton Heats drummer Arjuna Contreras, who until very recently was based in Texas. RJ just made the move to Nashville, and as promised, we'll be checking in with him about that process. So here now is the first of those check-ins. Hey everybody, this is a series we're doing. We're going to keep track of Arjuna Contreras as he makes his move from Texas to Nashville. He is the drummer for Reverend Horton Heat. He uh, was on the podcast not too long ago, but a couple times a month, we're going to check in with him and see how he's doing and the progress that he makes. He's a wonderful drummer, and I think he'll do great things here in Nashville, but we just want to keep you up to date with some of the realities of making a big move like this over the next 12 months. So check in every week, and uh, we'll keep you up to date. Hey, Matthew, how's it going, man? Good, RJ. How are you, man? Good. Can you hear me okay? I can. Can you hear me? I'm still dialing this stuff in. Sounds good. You you drove in yesterday? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I drove yesterday, 10 hours. 10-hour 10 trip. It, it went pretty well. And, uh, of course, you know, like I was, you know, excited and energetic the whole time, so I didn't even need any coffee to stay awake or anything. And I pretty much just brought a you know, carload of stuff right now. Most of my, my, all my crap is still back in, in Texas in storage until, until I get a place of my own, then I'm going to move it all out here. So nice, nice. What's the first thing on the agenda coming up? Well, been letting people starting, starting today and we'll be continuing on, continuing on for a few days. I'm letting everybody that I know out here just know that I'm in town. Like I compiled a list of about 30 people out here, um, that I know. And, you know, I've, I've told in various, um, shapes and forms that I'm going to be headed out to, to Nashville. And, you know, everyone's like, Hey, get in touch when you, when you get here. So yeah. starting to send out text messages and phone calls and, just trying to reach out to everybody and, and see what's happening. You know, I'm, I'm only in town for a week right now. I go back out on the road next okay. week for, for a couple of weeks. So <clears throat> I'm going to try to get as much, you know, communication going as I can in the next couple of days. And, um, you know, that, that's step one, I guess. Yes. Excellent. Well, uh, hopefully, uh, this will help as well. We'll post this, uh, yeah. for the episode this week. 
and Zach will use this audio as well for uh, we'll do this every two weeks. So we'll check in with you. I think oh, cool. a, a couple times a month will be will be spaced out in such a way that you'll have some information or some news, uh, even if it's uh, nothing super relevant. But it's 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 all realistic, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm excited you're here, and I'm 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 happy. I'm so glad that you that you want to participate in this experiment with us. I think it'll get some people yeah, fired up. I am, yeah, I am too, man. I'm really I'm really looking forward to this and. Uh, you know, it's going to be, uh, you know, it might not all be good, good info that I'm giving. I might be like, Oh man, I blew it on, on this or whatever, but oh, no, you that's, want it yeah. to be real. It's going to be real. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This audition or whatever. <laughs> that's hilarious. Welcome to Nashville and, uh, we'll be in touch. Great. Talk soon, Matthew. Okay. Thanks again, brother. Talk to you soon, man. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. So the story of how Jake found himself in the pit for the world's most popular musical is a somewhat unlikely one, considering he landed the gig with no prior experience in musicals whatsoever. So let's hear about that and much more with Jake Wood. You just recently returned from a run with Hamilton, right? That is correct, yeah. How long was was that run and where'd you go? Um, It was uh, six months. and Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, it could... Could be six years, man. You yeah, gotta, you know, um, like I, I, ba- I was the first musician to bow out from the the tour, um, but I, it started in San Diego, uh, then it was Tempe, Arizona, Denver, Colorado, uh, I think St. Louis after that, Houston. You made it over to see. over to Washington D.C., right? Because yeah, yeah, we were that's, texting that's, you were there. That's where we were last, um, and it's typically about you know a month per city, give or take a week or so. Right. So um, were were you literally not home for six months? Uh huh. That wow. is correct. So that yeah. that kind of touring doesn't really happen anymore. <laughs> I mean, it, it does, but just not so much in the you know rock and roll pop star context. You know, like back in the day when Metallica would do a world tour, and it took two years. Right. I mean, what I what I know of them now is that I think they tour it three weeks at a time. So. Right. And I think a lot of major acts, or not even major acts, I think most acts are you know doing that more sporadic model of touring rather than living yeah. on the road for. I mean, yeah, it's just so much more sustainable, and you know, you. I mean, the, the, oddly enough, the the six months of touring with with Hamilton was completely sustainable. But uh, you know, I, there there are certain things that could have fallen apart. Like you know, I'd, I was subletting at my house that could have gone awry. Right. Uh, you know, if if I'd been in a relationship, that certainly would have uh, been a strain. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have a teaching business back at home and I was very fortunate to have two really great um, drummers uh, working for me essentially mm-hmm. students which is really great so that you know the, the farm doesn't have to shut down right right but uh, it's, it's certainly uh, it, it's it's a it's a large chunk of time yeah yeah um, so this this model of touring like not not only are you out for long periods of time but you're kind of sitting down in a city for a yeah. long period of time. It's not like you pack up and leave every night. Um, yep. So, I mean, you, you've gotten to, uh, you know, essentially live in a bunch of different cities, at least for a little while. Um, mm-hmm. So what what have been some of your favorites? Like, have you have you gotten out in some cities and gotten to get some of the local scene and the local flavor and the food and, 
Uh, what's that I'd, like? I'd say in general, I'm, I'm a pretty horrible tourist and I'm not very good at getting out, but <laughs> that doesn't mean that I haven't experienced the cities a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't know if I, I necessarily had one favorite, but, but the upset for me, the one that I was not uh, upset as in, um, unexpected awesomeness was, uh, Houston. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I've only been to Austin before and, you know, like it's South by Southwest, that sort of thing. And, and, and it's known as being this, uh, tiny little tucked away pocket of liberalism, um, in this giant red state. Right. And so I just assumed that everything else in Texas was red and, and it's not like Houston is actually uh, one of the most diverse cities in the, in the country. Yeah. Uh, it was, I mean, the, the food was amazing. Mm-hmm. Their their bike lanes are, are out of control. They're everywhere. <laughs> um, you could bike along the bayou if you want to go somewhere. I mean, every, every day that I was riding to the theater, uh, I was riding along the bayou completely uh, away from all the cars and whatnot. So, and I, I mean, I remember uh, I, w- I walked into a Target one night and they had, uh, it was right around Gay Pride and they had a display for Gay Pride merchandise and... Mm-hmm. I was pretty blown away. I mean, being from San Francisco, I'm thinking, well, this is a tiny little kiosk. I mean, come on. You guys could get gayer than this, right? <laughs> but but uh, uh, it was in Texas. Yeah. Like, there's a gay pride display in Texas outside of Austin. That's huge. That's right. great. O- outside so, of Houston. Uh, no, sorry. Uh, outside. I meant that was in Houston, but it was outside of Austin. Oh, I see. Right? I see. Right. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So to, to, to see that, you know... Uh, Houston, a, a part of Texas, has come so far. It's it's awesome. Yeah, so. I remember seeing uh, Anthony Bourdain did a, a an episode of his CNN show in Houston, <laughs> um, and I remember seeing it right after I moved to Atlanta two and a half years ago. And and what I saw reminded me a lot of Atlanta. Like it's a it's a big city that has a certain reputation, but yeah. if you actually spend some time there, it's incredibly multicultural and great arts, great music, great food. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm probably going to have to interview a drummer from Houston here at some point. Uh, but that's, <laughs> I, I, I believe there are a lot of them. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure In there fact, are. While, while we were there, uh, uh, the, so, you know, I'm, I'm doing percussion on the show mm-hmm. and, uh, the, the drum set player, I believe he, uh, spent one Sunday morning subbing at like the world's biggest mega church. Wow, um, or, or the, the the United States biggest megachurch, which is in Houston or outside of it, I don't know. But right. um, yeah, just one one morning having to play. Uh, I don't know anything about. It. I, right. I know nothing about church music. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, um, so so let's talk about the 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 show that brought you to Houston. Um, how sure. did you join Hamilton in, in 2015? Was that the year? Uh, I don't think so. I, let's see, it's, we're in 2018 now. I believe I started working with them at, um, February of 2017. Okay, cool. Cool. Um, and how did, uh, how did that gig come across your radar? How did you come across their radar? Uh, it, it was a couple things that, that fell into place. Um, the, the interesting thing was that I was, aware of this guy named John Mater, who is the first call for all theater work in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And we've 
loosely known each other. Um, he was friends with my old drum teacher and the two of us at one point taught at the same drum store. Um, and I had a little downtime with, with my touring act, uh, Diego's umbrella. And I decided, you know, I hadn't really been putting my head in the freelance game at all in a long time. Mm -hmm. I'd kind of gotten burned out from it. And so I just decided like, I want to up my game a little bit. I want to under, I, I want to know a little bit about theater work. And I also want to get on John Mater's radar cause he's got all the, he gets all the good gigs and you know, it'd be great if he was uh, throwing me the stuff that he didn't want or couldn't right, do. Right. So I took a lesson with him and it was at that lesson. And I, I didn't know anything about theater. Mm -hmm. Like I, I hadn't seen anything since I was in like junior high or high school and I didn't like it. I was right. like, well, I should just check it out, you know. And you made so, it all the way through high school and college without ever playing a musical. Oh yeah. Wow. I, I okay. was I was I was way too busy just playing in my own bands and, you know, <laughs> right. playing punk rock and rap <clears throat> metal and shit like that. So <laughs> I wasn't about to be doing uh no no grease to Right, me. right. My fair lady. Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I, I took a lesson with him, and, and at that lesson, we only just talked about theater work. It, we, we didn't even get into, like, playing any charts or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And during the lesson, he said, so I'm going to be doing this show called Hamilton. And I said, oh, yeah, what's what's that? I hadn't heard of it. You know, like, like I said, I didn't know anything about theater work. Um, and he just said, well, it's, you know, just the biggest show out there. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> that's cool, man. Um, and so about a month or two later... Uh, he called me and said, Hey, the, the, um, the folks behind Hamilton are asking me if I know anybody that could do the percussion chair for it. Um, and if you're interested, I could put your name in the hat. I said, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely interested. Please do. He said, okay, cool. But you, you know, you have to be able to run Ableton live. And I was like, John, I've got Ableton live up on my computer right now. Like I use it all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, ah, well, that seems like a no brainer. Um, so to get his recommendation was pretty huge. Um, cause he'd worked with all these people for, you know, probably over a decade and they all trusted him. Right. So they put my name in the hat and then, uh, the, I think it was the music contractor got in touch with me and asked me for samples of my playing. Mm -hmm. Um, and because I'd had downtime, I had been making all these really fun, uh, drum covers, uh, for YouTube, just like, it was not the typical drum cover. I was actually uh, finding songs that didn't have drums, songs that were released commercially without drums. I was just adding drums to them. Oh, cool. Um, which is just sort of like a fun thing for me to do. Right. And, and it was a way for me to you know get a little bit better with the whole video editing, get a, you know tighten up my audio um, mixing skills. That's a really cool idea because so many drum covers, like I'm, quite honestly, I'm pretty down on drum covers like if yeah. <laughs> if i'm scrolling through instagram and somebody's like check out my drum cover i'm like nope mm -hmm. uh, but i think the main reason is because like you know there's already a drum part for that song and you know a video of somebody playing the drum part for that song i, I just i have trouble bringing myself to give a shit but sure what you what you did was uh you know f you you found a way to make it a more original um offering to people say, oh, yeah. like hey check out yeah. this drum part i created for this song that doesn't have any yeah. drums um and the other thing that that uh i thought of as you were describing that was how important it is we've talked about this before but how important it is to have 
an online social media presence uh, with uh, your playing. Yeah. Because, <laughs> we, I mean, yeah, it's, you know, we, we roll our eyes and it's kind of a cesspool and whatever. But yeah. uh, in your case and in, in other cases I could cite, uh, the people with the jobs, the people holding the money and signing the checks, look at your shit online and say, yep. can this guy play? What is he doing? And a, a lot of times that's in lieu of on a, in lieu of an actual audition. Yeah. I, I wonder if I could have still gotten the job without, um, having the YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, after they asked me for samples of my playing, I just realized I'm like, Oh my God, I, you know, I've had this downtime and I've just been stockpiling this great resume without even I mean, I wasn't making it for resume. I was just making it because it's music and it's fun. And um, and I, I was like, well, this is perfect because it's the most uh, up-to-date stuff. So, you know, the stuff that I had prior was probably 10 years old. And right. I'd like to imagine I've gotten a little better on the drums since then. So yeah. I didn't want to use it. Yeah. And uh, so I sent that stuff in. I had to put in a lot of caveats like, hey, you know, this isn't. But like this, this stuff was made for other drummers. So I'm overplaying a lot, you know, like, <laughs> don't, like I know how to read a chart. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, uh, put my own stamp on something. Right. And, um, and that was, that was it, man. There were, there were, there was no official audition. Um, I've heard that <laughs> they do audition for parts, but for whatever reason, uh, I guess the recommendation and the videos were enough. Right. Or something. Right. So, so uh, how long was it between the time you you were told like you're the guy, you're going on the gig, and and your first show, and and what did you have to do to prepare in that time? Um, I think I was given the choice of. I, I think when I I agreed to do the gig, it was probably around early January, and. Then I think I probably got the materials, like the charts and a conductor video, probably about mid mid January or so. Um, and the first rehearsal, I believe, was right at the end of or the, the very beginning of March, I think. Okay. Um, and and it was apparently it's unusual to even have like a week of rehearsals, but that's what that's what was planned because Hamilton's a different beast. So they're just doing things differently. Um, so after I got the charts, uh, and you know, most of what I play is on a Yamaha, I think it's a DTX sampler pad. Mm -hmm. Um, I realized that I was very, uh, very unprepared for the the gig or or maybe that's not the right term. Um, I mean, I, I, I never followed a conductor before. Uh, I'd never played theater before. I'd never been a percussionist before. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are all these keyboard parts too, which that was, that was one of the things that I flipped out about cause, uh, <laughs> I'm not a great, uh, keyboard player, uh-huh. but so they asked you about Ableton. Did they, did they not ask you about the keyboard thing or no, they, so one of the, one of the videos that I sent in was I, I used to play, well, I still we haven't quit, but um, there's this old band of mine called Super Adventure Club, which I'm wearing the shirt right now. <laughs> and uh, I play drums one hand and keyboards with the other hand. Wow. And I like it's probably my most viral video at you know ten thousand hits or something like that. Right. Uh, which is just a tiny little blip on the the YouTube radar. But 
Um, I put that at the top of the list of videos for them to watch and not even thinking that there might be keyboard parts. And I mm-hmm. think they saw that and, and just probably instantly thought, oh, yeah, he plays keyboards. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a pretty awful keyboard player. <laughs> <laughs> OK, whatever. Um, so so I got the charts and, uh, you know, I started running through it a little bit and realizing just how detail oriented this was and and how difficult it is to like to, to learn to play a show on a new instrument that you've never played before, like a sampler is it's far more difficult than you would imagine because you kind of have to really know the pads by heart, like where they are and whatnot. Cause there are plenty of times where you have to look up and, and watch the conductor and right. And I have not mastered seeing the conductor and the, the chart at the same time. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know if people do that or not, but I don't. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, it's dark down there. Your pads are black. It's <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, they, they actually provide me with adequate lighting. But, oh, good. Okay. I mean, I, I've had to fight for it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the lighting folks, you know, are not a huge fan of uh, me wanting more light, but right, right. like, well, either I hit the right notes or I don't. But <laughs> um, so after I realized just how difficult this undertaking would be, um, I decided to block out the entire month of February. Wow. And so I, I, uh, stopped teaching. I, I had, uh, one of my guys teaching for me and I stopped doing any other shows. I stopped hanging out with anybody. And for the entire month of February, and this is without any exaggeration, I, I practiced every day averaging 10 to 12 hours a day. Wow. And I would, you know, towards the end of it, I was trying to play the whole show without a single mistake and I just couldn't get it. Like <laughs> I tried, I tried, I, I couldn't get it. And, you know, I think there was one day where like I kind of, uh, one day after playing the show for a couple months where like I almost, I think, I think I kind of had a show where there were no mistakes, but the truth of the matter is that like it was objectively no mistakes subjectively. Yeah. That didn't sound that good. Right. You know? like, right. Right. You could have done that better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's, that was sort of my, uh, my preparation, um, for the show. If, yeah. So, uh, talk about, uh, learning to follow a conductor and, uh, you know, learning to, kind of, uh, you know, mold your playing to everything that goes on in a musical? Because it's not just about following the conductor. I mean, you're part of this, uh, you're part of this larger ensemble usually, and there's shit going on on stage. There's pushes and pulls and tempo, and and Mm -hmm. it's just this huge machine that you kind of have to jump on. Um, So talk about the process of of, uh, learning to do that. Well, uh, learning to follow a conductor was really nerve wracking, especially, <laughs> especially for Hamilton. Um, because the very first number starts with, um, uh, me following the conductor and hitting snaps on two and four, and there's pretty much nothing else happening there. So there's no audible validation that I'm hitting it at the right spot. Mm-hmm. It's like all, all I have is like, I'm hitting a snap. And I'm praying that it's locking in visually with the conductor's hand. Right. And I got, I got so many notes on not getting that right um, for months. Yeah. I mean, and I, uh, I struggled with it a lot. And I, I, I would just adopt different strategies like, okay, like really focus on 
um, you know, the, 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 where it looks like his hand is ending with the swoop or, or, you know, really focus on anticipating it. Or right. at one point he was like, Hey, why don't you follow my leg? Cause it's bouncing on eighth notes. I'm like, Oh, okay. You know? And that was screwing me up too. Cause like the first time it wasn't steady eighth notes, it would be like, you know, one and two, three and four. And yeah. Yeah, and just like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there were, you know, just a lot of different strategies as far as how to follow the conductor better. Um, has it also, been, sorry, go yeah. ahead. Uh, having other conductors sit in, like we, we have an associate conductor that right. We, I was, I was going to ask, has it been the same conductor throughout or no, no, no. So we, we've always had at least one associate conductor at this point. I think I've played to four different conductors now. Mm hmm. Um, on this one show and you know, it's the only show I've ever done. So I've got four conductors now that I've, I've played with and it's very fascinating, um, seeing the different body movements and yeah. trying to interpret them. Um, and I think that the first guy, the one that was, uh, I was having trouble following, he's, he's also a really, uh, well, I don't, I've never heard him play the drums, but I, I assume that he's a phenomenal drummer just based on the notes that he's given us and, mm-hmm. and his ear. And, and I mean, his keyboard playing is insane. So chances are he's probably fantastic on the drums. And he, um, uh, I think his level of precision is just far beyond what I was used to. Yeah. So that, that like really, I mean, I, I'm not saying that I, I was accurate at following him, but at least with the constant notes of being like, Nope, you're not, you're not with me. You're not with me. Like it just kind of made me hone in more and more and more. And then with the other conductors, you know, they're, they're younger guys typically around in their mid twenties or so. And Mm -hmm. I think they were just kind of like, yeah, man, it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I noticed, uh, about conductors, especially playing, um, in like an orchestra, which I did a bunch Mm -hmm. of in, in college. Um, just the, that concept of of time and rhythm is is so much more fluid uh and so much more um subjective and kind of slow moving with a with a big ensemble like that yeah. or, or with that kind of classical interpretation um and i think so many drummers are are used to playing with a click you know mm-hmm. like you you kind of you just want to bury the click you want to be right with it and with conductors uh, it's it's almost like they're you know what what you're seeing visually is often just a little bit ahead of what's happening sonically um, that like the conductor is the tip of the spear as far as time is <laughs> concerned and the ensemble comes behind him or her and like you have to get used to this weird delay in yeah <laughs> in time. I have I have zero interest in ever experiencing that delay <laughs> I don't know I don't know how other musicians do that yeah and I know that actually John Mater the the guy that got me the gig and who I did six months of playing Hamilton with. Uh, he had done a few shows with an orchestra somewhere where the, that was the expected timing. Right. And he couldn't stand it. Yeah. You know, he's like, uh, it just doesn't compute for us when we spent, you know, 20 plus years, as you said, like burying the click. And, and uh, you know, we use visual elements to help us sync up with other musicians. You watch the guitar player's right hand, you know, or, or yeah. I mean, most other people watching the drummer, I think, as far as visual cues. But, uh, yeah, like, and thankfully with Hamilton and I imagine with most musicals, it is like the, the visual representation is as accurate to the audible 
impulse as possible. Like everything is synced up as tightly as it can be. There, right. You know, there should be no delay. Um, right, right. At least not with Hamilton. The, yeah, the delay, the delay in the classical world is not you know them choosing to do it just to be different. I think it's a it's a you know it's a physical kind of sonic phenomenon where if a group of a hundred people all plays a downbeat together, the sound takes a while to actually manifest with you know a huge section of double basses and tubas and the low brass and it's you know so percussionists since since our sound is immediate like our sound is is percussive it's it's just totally immediate we have to adjust to that slower bigger sound and kind of put ourselves in that envelope which is i i agree it's totally weird and you don't (laughs) you don't need to ever experience it if you don't want to yeah i think i think it would be good to uh interview some conductors and classical percussionists to just sort of get an idea of where their what their mindset is on on all of that you know and I'd i'd be interested to find like what do you guys just you know drop some quaaludes and then stuff like that? That allows you to play you know a half second behind every downbeat or something. Like that's what it feels like, man. That's really what yeah. it feels like. It's 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 bizarre. Um, yeah. And the other thing that's weird about that is is um, like I said, there's there's so much more push and pull in in time and tempo. Um, mm-hmm. Even you know if if you listen to like. Uh, a, a Bach prelude or something, the way they interpret, you know, runs up and down a scale or into a downbeat. Like there's, you know, sometimes it pushes into it. Sometimes it pulls. It's not on a grid at all. Yeah. Um, and I think when, you know, when conductors or other musicians from the classical world, uh, uh, find themselves in a pit <laughs> with people like us, uh, a, a middle ground has to be, uh, found. Or stamped out. Yeah. One of the two. <laughs> so you're the percussionist in this group, and so there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a drum set player. Yeah. Who is that? Uh, in the, the touring uh, group that I just left, uh, it's a guy named Vansel Cooper, or okay. he just goes by Coop. Okay. And is he San Francisco-based as well? No, he is from Boston. Okay. Um, um, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say most most of the band. There were three of us from San Francisco, myself and two string players, and then the majority of the band was from uh, the New York area. Okay. Um, had you found yourself in this? Is it fair to call it an auxiliary role that you're playing? Uh, I would definitely not call it that. Okay. Um, so t- it's- typically. Uh, Sure, we all know percussion can be an auxiliary. Aux, that's a tough word. I know auxiliary role, but um, what I did and for this particular show, it was uh, well. Let me. I'll, I'll just uh, explain it. Um, so it's a hip hop, you know, themed show. Right. A lot of electronic drums. Um, I play a lot of those electronic drum parts. Mm-hmm. There's certainly some songs where it's like, hey, you know what? I am auxiliary percussion for sure. Right. Absolutely. Right. Uh, but there's also other tunes where we were actually between the drummer and I, we were splitting. Like he would do the kick and the snare, electronic kick and snare, and I'd be doing the electronic hi-hat stuff. Huh. It's like you, you can't have one of the one of those three can't drop out, essentially. Right. Um also, the other really big thing is that I controlled the metronome for the whole show, and 
Um, so that it's more than just the metronome. It's also, uh, so that that's the Ableton side of it. Right. Um, I was running Ableton and within a show, there's probably about a hundred different, um, points where I have to turn on the click. Wow. And you know, any tune might have six, anywhere between one to six or seven parts where I have to drop the click in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the click is also tied in with sound effects, um, some backing tracks and lighting cues. Wow. So it's, it's a pretty big chair to the point where, uh, you know, you could, you could easily make an argument that it's like the highest pressure chair in the, in the pit. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean the the drums, percussion, and conductor. Those three are the, the those those are the big three right there. Yeah, yeah, so. and I think that's that's often the case uh, in a musical. No matter uh, you know, no matter what genre it's uh, it's kind of based on the the conductor and uh, the drum chair, and in this musical's case, your chair uh, yeah. really drive the show and really control kind of everything like you said yeah, from sound effects absolutely. to lighting to um it reminds me of uh, uh an interview we did recently with tracy broussard who is um blake shelton's drummer and he was talking about how in a in a production like that you know he can't he can't decide one night that he's going to do that fill going into the bridge a little differently because yeah. the lighting guys are listening for that fill that he plays every night, and they're going to do a thing on the bridge. And if he does a different fill, they're going to be like, "Wait, what? What the fuck is he doing?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, and on that note, uh, for my own chair, uh, there were no slash marks in my charts, so it's not what? like I, 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 you know, there, I didn't have room to uh, improvise or you know, right. Do my own thing. I was like, nope. You just you just play the notes that are on there. Yeah, it's composed. Yeah. Now uh, the drum chair is is a bit different, um, and there were plenty of parts where you know, I've, and I've played the show with a few different drummers now, um, and they've definitely had their little moments of uh, liberty where they, you know, slightly change a fill. It's still a fill in the same place, but right. like you know, like yeah, well let's let's try it this way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Talk about how um, you, you talked about it a little bit, but expand on how you and the drummer uh, kind of you know tag team the the drum and percussion sounds in this show. Um, uh, sorry, can you explain a little bit more what which element you're asking about? Uh, well, basically, like musically, like what sounds are you using? I assume the the oh. drummer is just using conventional drum set. Um, yeah, but so he's he's got like a. a pretty massive drum set and the reason why it's massive is because it's got five snare drums whoa um which is like that's a you know we all know that's a huge uh point of what changes the personality of a drum set is just the the snare tone um and so they were very uh particular with making sure that the right snare for the right song was there they being Um, the musical directors or the uh yeah yeah this guy alex lackamore he's the arranger and i believe also the music supervisor for the Mm -hmm. show um i'm not i don't know those terms that well but he definitely arranged it right and and, uh so yeah he orchestrated it with with five different snares and in addition to that um i'd say probably 80 percent of the show when the drummer's playing two and four i'm playing two and four with him 
hitting uh, electronic samples. Hmm. Uh, and sometimes they were just additional snare tones, just electronic snare tones. And sometimes they were claps or, or snaps or something. Right. Um, but that, that forms a large part of what we would do. And, mm-hmm. and the, the trippy thing was doing, you know, essentially three hours of playing two and four with a drummer and not, not necessarily playing one and two and three and four and, but just two and four. Right. Um, and not flaming with the drummer or with the click, which was, whoo, man, that was, that was really hard. That, <laughs> yeah. was, that was a learning experience for me. You yeah. Know, yeah. Like I hadn't done that before. Mm-hmm. So it's cool that, uh, that they're, they're actually using five snare drums. Oh yeah. I mean, that would be, especially with the touring production, you know, the, the no brainer would seem to be like, you know, get out the SPDX or, uh, the big fat snare drum or, or whatever, like let's travel light, but it, you know, they're, they're breaking out all five snares. They, That's really cool. Yeah. They got, they got the budget for it. So they're, right. they're going all out. You know, another funny thing was, uh, my setup. Um, I have a giant bass drum. That's, I don't know. I think it's probably about, uh, 40 inches in diameter or something wow. like that. I mean, it's, you know, just one of those giant symphonic yeah, concert big, bass drums. Concert bass. Yeah, and it takes up so much space in my little area, and it's like I'm not a small person, and <laughs> and they're giving me like a very restricted amount of space here. And I remember like on on day one or two of uh, doing the rehearsals, we had one of the um, keyboard programming guys there, and he's like, "Yeah, man, I don't, you know, I'll bet like in a couple of years." They'll finally be like, all right, we don't need to travel with this giant bass drum anymore. We can just use a sample. It's fine. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, man, bring bring it on. Like, I really prefer to play acoustic instruments, but this thing is really cramping my style uh, <laughs> like physically. Like, I, I've slammed my knees into it so many times just trying to turn so I can hit a snare drum or something. Uh, like, Yeah, I could I could use a sample here and there. It's, it's still with you? Bass drum's still with you? Yeah, it's it's I I don't think it's going anywhere for a long time. And does it does it play a prominent role in the show or is it just like no, one, one no, hit no. that <laughs> I mean there's there's a you know there's like one song called Hurricane where it plays a very uh prominent role in um these big hits here and there. Right. But I mean aside from and and I do play it in other songs sporadically, but it's definitely one of those instruments where it doesn't like like the, the sampler gets played all the way through the show pretty much you know like it's going to get wear and tear i'm playing that thing the bass drum i don't ever need to tune it because i don't hit it that much (laughs) yeah like we could probably break down how much it costs versus how many notes i play on it so that we could figure out what the actual cost is per note per night right (laughs) Uh, actually and another similar thing is we have chimes uh, like tubular bells yeah for the show and there's i think uh, six of them, just, you know, six different notes. Uh-huh. Um, so they didn't bother to get a whole chromatic set. And I play each tubular bell once in the show. <laughs> and those things are probably, I don't know, 500 bucks a tube or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like, like that. All right. <laughs> yeah. It's Hamilton. It's not my money. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, cool. And what else What else do you have on, on the setup? Um, so there's also a keyboard. I can't remember what, uh, Yamaha motif, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a glockenspiel, which is a lot of fun. There's some, uh, some go-go bells. There's a snare drum. 
there's a floor tom that I think I only play in like two songs. There's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, plenty of shakers and tambourine and, um, a couple s- suspended cymbals. I think that's, I think that's pretty much it. Oh, there's the one, one handed triangle. There's that. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Is it, is it, is it absolutely necessary that it be one handed? Oh yeah. 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 Oh, no, check this out. When I, one of the, th- one of the things that was kind of, uh, scary to me is when I first got the charts, I saw a chart. It's for this song called a winner's ball, I think, or a winner's mm-hmm. night, one of the two. And, uh, it had, I think, uh, like four bars of 32nd notes on the triangle along with some snare notes on, you know, like a typical groove sort of thing. And I remember looking at it and then listening to it and just thinking, this is impossible. Like, how can somebody do this? Right. And then I looked closer at the chart and it said one handed triangle. I'm like, yeah, I get it. Like, you want me to play the triangle one handed while I hit the snare with the other hand. But like, that's there's no way I could like do these fast 30 second notes and mute it every other two notes. Like, and then I found out that there's a product called the one handed triangle. Right. <laughs> And it's really cool because you play it like a shaker, but you can mute it with your fingers. And, and I mean, it's hard. I, I, you know, I don't feel like I'm a very consistent one-handed triangle player. Um, <laughs> you got to, you got to hit the shed with the one-handed triangle, man. Dude, I, I, you know, one of the frustrating things about the show is when you put in a lot of work for just the tiniest of moments. Yeah, like you, you, you got to watch yourself so you don't end up spending too much time on it, but. You know, in order for me to prepare for the show, one of the tunes I had to um, learn all these uh, keyboard parts for him is the song called What Did I Miss? And it has all these uh, vibraphone parts that are played on a keyboard, a lot of seventh chords and, you know, inverted. And there's some pretty difficult lines to or runs to play that I just didn't have the the chops for. And like I ended up taking my first uh, piano lesson because of that. And I would like every day I was you know, along with those 10 to 12 hours of practicing every day in February, like a, a portion of that was spent just working on the keyboard part mm-hmm. for this one song. You know, like, yeah, yeah. And I just knew that at the first rehearsal, they were going to hear me play that part on the keyboard and be like, dude, we got to fire this guy, man. This guy <laughs> can't play the keyboard at all. But I think uh, that song's so busy that nobody really... Um, Nobody bothered to speak up and be like, hey, Jake, uh, <laughs> just don't play. <laughs> right, right. Well, you touched on uh, kind of one of the, um, you know, one of the truths about about classical percussion. Um, I, I used to be heavy into that. I did a, a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in classical percussion. And, and one of the things oh. about it is, like you said, you're going to you, you will find yourself on a huge setup and half the shit on it is there for one note. Yeah, you know whether you're doing a percussion ensemble piece or an orchestra piece or a musical or whatever, um, you know a, a lot of effort in terms of setup and preparation and practice goes into a single sound <laughs> on on a single it's, occasion. Yeah, um, and and it just puts so much more pressure on that one note too. It's yeah, not fair. yeah. Well, it's it's not fair. I remember my freshman year, uh, my uh, my percussion teacher said, uh, you know, if, if you have, uh, if you have a single crash, if you're playing crash cymbals and you have a single note in a movement of a symphony, if you fuck up that note, 
that's like a violinist fucking up 2,000 notes because you <laughs> you fucked up 100% of your notes. You you had one job. Right. <laughs> <laughs> one, I mean, one job. Yeah. Hit one note. Yeah. yeah. And it, it can be frustrating to, you know, to put all this effort into what seems like such a small thing. But it, it also, um, you know, really makes you detail oriented and, you know, teaches you the the little subtle nuances in the difference between like well if i play this one note like this how does it sound it's not i mean if you're banging out eighth notes for four hours on the hi-hat you're not really paying attention to each one of those you know um it's more of a continuous motion but focusing on one single sound and learning how to get that right i think is a is a valuable skill for for anybody yeah and and to touch on that further with the the concept of uh, you know, as as you play multiple notes, like eighth notes, you're you're not only like honing in on the tone that you want, but you're also very subtly calibrating your timing as right. as you you know, like it, it might just take you two or three notes to f- be like, okay, cool, now I'm synced up, right? And to just have one note, like especially like with a giant bass drum where you're swinging this big fucking mallet that like it weighs it's it's the weight of like 10 drumsticks you're like you're not used to the timing of that Uh and you play your one note and you're like well that didn't go as i expected (laughs) because uh well i'm used to you know i normally i play it like for a couple bars and then all right now i'm really starting to feel it i'm like no you got to feel it on that one note right (laughs) and you got to be with the click and with the conductor and with the people on stage and yeah yeah, it's not easy. I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting here stressing you out on your off time. You're like, ah. oh no, it's, my, my days of stressing out uh, are over. I, it only took about you know 400 shows, but I, did it, I did don't it take that out. many to really get comfortable? Yeah, yeah. Like when when we did the first uh, run of it in San Francisco, um, I never stopped stressing out, wow. and that was about five months. And then when I started doing the tour uh, earlier this year. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe it was about midway through the tour. So, you know, another three months in eight shows a week. Okay. Finally, I'm starting to feel like a human being playing music again, just like, you know, less pressure. And, and a lot of it had to do with, um, uh, the metronome, as I'd mentioned before, like, cause that was a, it was a similar situation with like playing only one note and that it was a button that I hit with my left foot. And so much depended on just that one note, and it had to be, you know, perfectly in line with the drummer's kick drum or the, or the, the uh, conductor's hand. And and if I missed it, or or it was late, it was like, well, I mean, imagine turning on a metronome with a band playing, and you're a little bit off. It's it's yeah, it's, it's a train wreck. It's a track. <laughs> you got it. You have to turn it off instantly. Or you know, I mean, they they might magnetize to the metronome and sort of fix your error, but you know, it, it needed to be perfect. Um, there was no, as, as Benny Reiner, the percussionist who's doing the show in New York said, um, he said, there's really no margin for error in the show. I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, got it. So you just turn it on, make sure it's right. And that's it. When you're not, traveling around the country and around the world you're you're based in san francisco in the bay area yep did you come from there or did you just end up there somehow uh i'm from the bay area uh slightly outside of sf just a little suburb nearby but i've i've been born and raised bay area and i've lived in san francisco for the last 13 years yeah 
So, so talk about the, the musical scene there, the, the musical history, the musical identity, because San Francisco has a, a distinct and, and cool uh, yeah. identity as a, as a music city, I think. Yeah, and I, I'm, I don't really know how uh, most other people view the musical scene here. I mean, they might just be like, well, I don't know, isn't that the, isn't that the town where that band Train came from? Like, <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, we also have, I don't know. Tower of Power, yeah, you know, but well, they're more of an East Bay thing, but uh, just Bay Area in general. Um, well, that's the know, other thing I was wondering. Like, if, is 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 the kind of Bay just taken as a whole, or do people from San Francisco kind of identify differently than than Oakland or anywhere else? Um. Well, I think it maybe just depends on uh, who you're talking to and how far away you're having that discussion. Like if you were <laughs> me, meaning, meaning like if you're from Oakland and you're out in, uh, you know, you're out in, in Atlanta, for instance, and somebody's asking you where you're from, it might just be better to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm from the Bay area or I'm from San Francisco. You know, people right, say that right, it's just, right. like, well, you probably don't even know how far away Oakland is from San Francisco or whatever. Just say that. Yeah. But I mean, there's definitely, uh, there's this, just sort of geographical divide where it's like we're, we're split by this big old body of water mm-hmm. and it's kind of a hassle for folks to go between the two. Um, so, you know, like I, back in the day when I was doing more freelancing stuff, I tried to avoid working with bands that were based out of Oakland. Mm-hmm. Um, only because of the limitations of getting there and how frustrating it was. So, right. but you know, just being from the East Bay and then, coming to san francisco i mean to me it's just all it's all part of the same but they are very different cities for sure Uh like san francisco is predominantly white with a lot of uh chinese um and then oakland is has a lot more african-americans there Mm -hmm. yeah um and there's there's definitely more it's i mean the you know san francisco is now the most expensive place to live in the world right oh i mean yeah, well, let's not let's not get into that too much. But, right. but Oakland's right behind them, you know. Like we're everybody's affected by it, right? So. Right. So you mentioned uh, uh, freelancing, like before before the Hamilton thing came around. What what did that look like for you? I mean, it sounds like you were involved in a couple of like steady projects, touring things yeah. and recordings. Um, so talk about that the you know the music musical life you had before Hamilton and, and how much of it is still there? Did you basically have to forsake it to, <laughs> to no, do this gig? I, I did not forsake it. Um, so probably about 10 years ago, I was burning the candle on both ends, just trying to freelance as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And I remember like I played a show or excuse me, I, I had a day where I played five shows in one day and luckily it was only three different venues, but it was with five different bands. Wow. And it was probably the you know the hardest day I'd ever done yeah. uh, on the drums at least, and uh, I just remember like the last show was this sold out show you know three hundred people in the room sort of thing and the music was trash and and <laughs> like there were of of the five shows I played only one was actually any good and that was and I'm I'm biased but that was my band mm-hmm. the rest were just these really awful bands that just wanted you know they couldn't get a drummer for free because their music was awful and so i'm like all right uh i'll, I'll do it it's kind and of a thing like you were there already 
you well just, no no it wasn't it was uh, this was definitely a, a predetermined like learn this learn the tunes you know write your own charts sort of thing. right but you were gonna be there already it was yeah like, yeah, yeah yeah they were the bands were like friends with each other so. right right um but I just I really burned out on that realizing like man I just spent all day playing music that I don't respect mm-hmm. and right around that time this band that I had played with a little bit in the past um, called Diego's Umbrella asked me if I would become full time with them and they were touring a lot and I was I was just decided I'm like yeah I'm ready to make the switch so I did and uh, it's a band that I've respected for ever since then mm-hmm. um, music, musically speaking so. I've been touring with them for about the last nine or 10 years. And somewhere along the way, I just stopped. Like, I just didn't have time to do any of the freelance stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really appreciated being in a much more dedicated environment. Like, yeah. the, the freelance world can be so apathetic and touch and go. And, and you know, like, these artists, they're like, well, you know, I... I've wrote my one album and I'm just going to promote this. And then I'm probably never going to do music again after this year. You know, it's like, <laughs> right. like, yeah, I don't really want to be involved with that. Like I want people, I want to work with people that are lifers. Um, and to find a band like that, I mean, you know, some people have since moved on and whatnot cause they chose to go other paths, but, uh, it's great being in a band with people that are like, yeah, we, we want to put in 110%. We want to do whatever it takes. And I, I like, that energy is, I, I, I love it. And, yeah. uh, and so I, have been working with them for a long time. And I also started working with a band called March 4th, um, who, uh, has, I, I haven't worked with them in about two years, but, but they would also tour around. Uh, they still tour all the time. Um, and that, that, that's pretty much it, man. I, I stopped doing the, the freelance thing. Like I, I wasn't even excited to, you know, if somebody asked me to, show up and record a few songs i just thought to myself like uh yeah you want me to put in a lot of effort and then you're gonna try and sing over this and you don't even know how to sing in tune or (laughs) you know like i mean it's just it's just such a common problem in the freelance world that like the music that you're hired to play is not very good Mm -hmm. the the quality is bad i remember uh you know josh freese yeah yeah he said something in an interview where he's like yeah i've probably played on maybe over 400 albums. And to be honest, I probably never even heard 90% of them. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I believe, I believe that. I mean, right. I imagine that the projects that he's getting called for are typically a lot better than the, the ones that I was, but who I, knows? I, I, anybody, not necessarily. Anybody? The projects that he got called for might've just had a shitload of money. Um, and yeah. you know, that is, it's something I've noticed about venues um, where like you see a certain band or a certain person playing a certain venue and you think uh, like, wow, how did they get in there? Like that venue, like, you know, got, they, they got noticed by that venue somehow or whatever. And a lot of times it's not the case. They just paid to book the venue. It's the same thing with a studio. It's like, wow, that guy's yeah. recording at Capitol studios. It's, yeah. it's like, yeah, but he's just paying shit loads of yeah. money. It's not, <laughs> it's not merit based always. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's a, a concept I think a lot of musicians wrestle with is like the freelance versus the, the steady, uh, more, more dedicated group. Um, and you know, the freelance world, 
I, th- I think they both come with a lot of pros and cons because, like you, like you said, in the freelance world, you can find yourself in just kind of these apathetic one-off situations. But at the same time, you know, it can be incredibly challenging and stimulating and inspiring to be always mm-hmm. learning new music, always playing with good people. You know, it's yeah. n- it's not always great music. It's not always the best people but it's always new right it's mm-hmm. it's almost never boring and then with the with the you know the steady band thing like everybody's in it to win it everybody's on the same team but i've found that there's often uh, a lot more drama a lot more personality clashes sure. that don't happen yeah. in the freelance world so so pick your poison i guess <laughs> i think you've summed up the two worlds quite quite accurately right yeah. right yeah. um so uh, have you been able to to kind of keep your uh your local san francisco based activity uh going as you've been spending a lot of time with hamilton uh well Yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that, you know, my teaching business is still thriving. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's kind of a private studio that you kind of built, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I stopped teaching for other people a long time ago. Uh, one, you know, the, the first in one music store I taught at, I'm like, I'm never doing that again. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was a very bad experience, and I learned plenty from it. And mm-hmm. uh, I realized that I would just be much happier renting out my own studio and, and, um, teaching from there. So, right. uh, so yeah, the, 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 teaching business is still going strong. And, you know, when I, uh, I'm, I'm currently just setting up, um, lessons again right now with, with some of the students that I haven't seen in six months. So there's mm-hmm. that, um, my, my band Diego's umbrella, I, I already, you know, the first week I was back, I was already playing a show with them and, I got, you know, we we got a bunch of shows on the books, so... That's cool, because yeah, you, you can hit the ground running with them when you're not doing Hamilton. Oh, yeah, and and I think uh, next year I'm going to do another run of Hamilton in San Francisco, and this time around I'm going to have to get a sub, because I, I just need to hit the road with them more. Like, to, to be gone for six months, even though I did arrange a sub for them, it's just not the same. Like You arranged a sub for Diego's Umbrella or for mm-hmm. Hamilton? Okay. Well, I'm gonna have to do both, <laughs> but but when I did Hamilton, I arranged a sub for my band, yeah. um, and now I'm gonna have to find a sub for Hamilton so that I can go and play with my band. Which gotcha. that's a, it's a it's a, a difficult tall order, especially because most of the good musicians have left the Bay Area. So because it's too expensive, it's too expensive. Yeah, and you know, I mean, it's just sort of like a trend when when a bunch of the arts folks start leaving you kind of wonder well maybe i should too if all my buddies are going hmm, yeah uh-huh. i mean there, there's still plenty of musicians here right but. right do you find they're leaving to a specific place or just away from that place um i don't really know firsthand but i could certainly speculate that most of them are moving to la mm-hmm. or portland or seattle which are those are the pretty much like the closest places where you can uh, still expect to find a, a, well, obviously in LA you can find a lot of musicians and then in Seattle and Portland, you're probably, yeah, you, there's plenty of 
music folks out there. Right, right. Um, just in the in the couple of minutes we have left, talk. I want to hear about your your teaching studio and how you developed that and and built that because I think sure. this is another dilemma a lot of drummers face. Like you know, teaching at a music store at a school of rock yeah. type place comes with uh, again comes with certain pros and cons. But um, for, for yeah. those for those who are wanting to kind of build their own private uh, enterprise with a, a body of students, how did you develop that? Um, it started with baby steps and that I would, you know, if I, I remember when I first moved to San Francisco, I found a studio where I was sharing it with somebody. And so I, you know, I rented it out and knew that the first couple of months I might not necessarily be able to pay that rent just from teaching. But, um, I started advertising and I, this is, you know, before Yelp existed. So mm-hmm. I was, um, I had ads on Craigslist, which I haven't done in probably a decade, but I had ads on Craigslist. I was putting up flyers on billboards, most mm. billboards like, or excuse me, community bulletin boards. Right. Uh, most of those don't even exist anymore. Uh-huh. And the only reason why I would notice that is because I, I like they were going away as I was still trying to put those up because they actually worked. <laughs> right. And I think that they still work in small towns, mm-hmm. but in a place like San Francisco where everyone's tech savvy, it's all about online uh, presence. So then I, you know, I made a Google business listing before anyone else even knew what that was. And I had a website and, and then I started, you know, once Yelp became a thing that wouldn't go away, unfortunately, um, (laughs) I, I started asking students to write reviews for me. And as a result, it's like, I've become the, you know, if you search for drum lessons in San Francisco, I'm usually the first thing that pops up. And, uh, and that, I mean, that's huge. Yeah. uh, so it's, it, I guess the, the big thing I think for, for potential drum teachers to consider is that, you know, just, just don't, don't imagine that you have to spend, you know, $2,000 this month just so that you can teach three students. Like right. there, there are ways of, you know, you, you can just get a little time here at a studio just to teach one or two students. And then eventually you, you know, you get more and more and more, but you got it. You got to advertise. You got to put yourself out there. Right. And take full advantage of, uh, of the various forms of free advertising. I mean, all your students writing yeah. Yelp reviews didn't cost you a penny. Nope. Um, certainly didn't. And also, uh, paying for ads, I think is kind of a, a waste of money personally. Although, you know, I haven't, I haven't paid, I, I tried it once and it, nothing changed. You know, I threw in like $50 to Google AdWords or whatever it's called uh-huh. and it didn't change anything. So, you know, the, 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 the free advertising is probably the most effective still. Have you spent money on Facebook or Instagram or any of that shit? I have not. Uh-uh. Instagram just seems like who would go on Instagram to look for drum lessons, you know? <laughs> Like, yeah. I mean, what, what, where would your mind go if you're like, Hey, I want to take drum lessons or Hey, my kid wants to take drum lessons. Where would I go to find it? Google. Right. I mean, that's Google or Yelp. That, yeah. And my, uh, my wife, uh, works in, uh, uh, marketing and branding. She works mostly for private schools, but she told me an interesting thing the other day, uh, which is that if, if people are searching for something, obviously the number one search en- engine is Google, but number mm-hmm. two is YouTube. Oh, so if yeah, okay. if people are looking for something, they'll like they'll go on Google um, and you know find whatever websites or whatever they they can. But I think yeah. especially for younger people, they don't even mess with Google; they go straight to YouTube. Um, yeah. So it, you know, it, you obviously have a strong a strong YouTube presence, so I'm sure that helped. 
I wouldn't call it strong. <laughs> I just say I have a lot of videos, and every once in a while, somebody will watch one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a presence, which is yeah. more than can be said for for some other people. Sure, um, sure. Well, cool, man. It is it is three o'clock on the dot, and and we All are right. out of time. Uh, cool. I wish I wish we had a little more to to shoot the shit about some other things, but uh, but thank you for for spending this time with us. Yeah, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have to go, but uh, this is great, and I really appreciate it. All good, man. It was great. Great to hear about the show. Uh, when are you going back out? Um, with Hamilton? Yeah. Uh, well, in January we're gonna do a month in Puerto Rico. Oh wow. Yeah, and actually, Lin Manuel Miranda, the the guy that wrote it, he's gonna be playing Hamilton. Right. I uh, heard about that, it's, and it's it's to raise money for Puerto Rico, right? Mm-hmm. That's really yeah. cool. That's really so I'm going to cool. do that in January, and then and then the show will come back to San Francisco and stay here for probably a year, maybe a little bit longer. Cool. And I'll just I'll just be here uh, night after night playing the click. Man, and, uh, get to be home. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Kick that part's ass. nice. Kick ass. So. Well, cheers, man. Thanks for talking. Oh yeah, man. My pleasure. There you go. No drama. Hard worker. Solid dude. Jake Wood. If you're going to be in San Francisco in 2019, or if you live there and have any money left after paying rent, uh, go check him out in Hamilton. Once again, subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher and iTunes. Leave us a rating and review. Tell a friend about us. Anything and everything helps us grow, and we appreciate it all. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview. Thanks, as always, to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.